trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Our program is brought to you in part by our friends at Nikki's Wholesale Food Warehouse, as well as the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage and Jeff Staples Real Estate. I got a special guest joining me. I want to welcome Travis Nix. And uh, Travis, I don't think I can do justice other than to say, well, you are a student at, at Georgetown and you are a writer. I just read an excellent piece that you had written, I believe, in the, uh, was it the Washington Post? Uh, Washington Examiner. Washington Examiner. Sorry. If, if I've offended you by saying Washington Post, I, I, I sure didn't mean to. I'm, I'm just teasing. Tell us about yourself, though. Before we dive into your article, you've got a great article on how, yeah, Trump's tax returns are, are making a lot of headlines. And now there's talk about, well, maybe we need to revamp the whole tax code. And, and, and you have a great take on that. But first of all, tell us who you are. Tell us what makes you tick. Yeah, so my name is Travis Nix. I'm. Uh, thanks for having me, too, Brian. I'm very appreciative to be on your show. Um, I go to Georgetown Law, study uh, tax law. I used to be an intern for the Heritage Foundation, focusing on tax policy. Um, my tax policy work has been featured in a wide variety of media outlets, Fox News, National Review, Federalist, Chicago Tribune. Uh, other than that, when I'm not doing tax policy stuff, I'm a huge sports fan, and basically that's my life. Uh, taxes and sports, that's what I do. Okay, it's an interesting combination. I would think taxes, this year, taxes might actually leave you more to be happy about than uh, than sports, given all the, you know, the fallout from COVID-19. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's just a lot of stuff in taxes right now in the news, whether it be the COVID stimulus package um, or <clears throat> what we have right now, the story about uh, Trump's taxes, big bombshell story that has been years in the making for some people think. But so, to us, yeah, to us, it's actually not that big of a surprise what's in there. If people who know taxes know that the deductions that Donald Trump taken are pretty common. Okay, and that's that's really where I wanted to start. You know, the 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 New York Times, it's a bombshell. Oh, the outrage and look, as hostile as the media has been towards Trump over most things, that's pretty much what I expected. But I'm not a guy who really gets into taxes. You know, frankly, I'm not even that fond of paying them. I just do it because, you know, the or else part makes it makes it pretty good incentive. But when, when the, the media and, and when certain politicians make a big deal out of, well, you know, he only paid a mere $750 in income taxes the first year of his presidency, um, are we supposed to be outraged? I'm not sure what the message is that they're sending because I'm kind of like, cool, good for him. Do I have that all wrong? <laughs> uh, no, I, I personally don't think that your take is wrong at all because – the deductions that he's taken, they're primarily depreciation, which is he's a real estate um, investor and builder. And that's basically once you build a structure, and obviously Donald Trump has thousands of buildings around the world, 
he is able to depreciate those assets over if they're a residential structure 27 years, if they're a business 39 years. So those are long write-offs. So he still gets write-offs from stuff that he potentially did in the 1980s. And so it's very common from that regard. And then obviously the real estate industry has booms and busts. And so when the real estate industry does go bust, he's going to have losses and substantial losses. And he's able to carry forward those losses to future tax years. So the fact that he did have almost a billion dollar loss in the early 1990s. So those losses are going to subsidize these next potentially 20 years of taxes, which is why his tax liability is so low. Okay. And again, I, I'm not trying to. I'm I'm, re- I'm not a Trump fanboy, but I, I think that uh, the hostility that is directed towards him sometimes uh, gets pretty one-sided. And so when when I see, well, you know, he only paid this, and and that's just not fair. I, I'm I'm wondering if the implication on those who were complaining the loudest is that uh, he should have paid much more. It seems to me that uh, there are. There are parts of the tax code, and I'm going to call them loopholes. There may be better ways to describe them. You, you tell me. But it seems like those, those parts of the tax code are there for a purpose. And, and Congress is the one who put those there. Um, if, if they were really that bad, I mean, it's, it's not like uh, I, I don't believe he's done something criminal. It seems like the implication is he's just not paying more considering he's supposed to be a billionaire. Yeah, and I agree with you. There are parts of the tax code that do need reforming, and there are substantial loopholes. The problem is that his two biggest deductions, they're not loopholes. They are essential parts of the tax code. Without depreciation, the cost of investment would be so high, nobody would do it. And I talk about that in my article. Um, And basically, that depreciation in capital investments, the ones that Donald Trump makes, that's what grows our economy, makes it more productive, raises wages for everybody. And that, without net operating loss deduction, basically no small business would be able to survive without this deduction because many businesses, it takes years for them to become profitable. And so what the net operating loss deduction does, it basically rewards businesses and entrepreneurships from starting and basically says that brighter days are ahead. Even though you're not making money now, you'll be able to write that off in the future. So the government isn't going to confiscate all your profits once you actually do become profitable. So it rewards entrepreneurship and job creation. So as I'm looking at your article, it appears that those deductions um, now are kind of a target. And I think you said Bernie Sanders was one of the first ones and and Elizabeth Warren standing up there to say, you know, it's time to tax the rich. It's time they pay their fair share. But what you're describing here would seem to indicate that those deductions that are taken, you know, on, on losses actually have benefit for people other than just the person who owns the, the property. In other words, those deductions benefit others throughout the economy. Yeah, definitely. And there is fear that these deductions are going to be taken away. Now, Nancy Pelosi hinted at today that scaling back the net operating loss deduction is essential in a COVID stimulus package, a second package, which is outright ridiculous because right now businesses are struggling all over the country because of shutdown and just people not coming into uh, shop because of public health reasons. Um, and so without this deduction, many business, more businesses would close their doors. Wow. Because, yeah. So, so let's, let's put this fire out by dumping a little more gasoline on it, essentially. 
Yeah, exactly. Basically, if we scale back the net operating loss deduction now, our economic crisis is going to get much worse, especially because, and it makes no sense with the current policy, because we actually expanded this deduction in, in the CARES Act in March. And now they're like, no, we don't like this anymore because Trump benefits from it. Wow. And they're just... Yeah, they're ignoring all the small businesses in this country that are struggling with the recession just because Trump benefits from a deduction. You know, and that's I maybe you can can shed some light on this for me um, with all of those small businesses that are struggling. I think I was reading somewhere that in some areas, up to 60 percent of these businesses that were shut down may not ever reopen again. Um, it seems like the the need for taxes didn't go away, but at the same time, for for those businesses or for the individuals who own them to still have to pay taxes, puts a really tough burden on them. And yet, I I don't see a lot of move towards um, those in government saying, you know, we should really lighten their load. Are you hearing any any rumors or any? Are you catching wind of of efforts to relieve that tax burden? Considering that these people, yeah, it's not like they chose not to work; they were essentially forced into that position. Yeah, um, months ago, there was discussion of basically accelerating some tax credits. And the one thing I talk about in my article is you can actually accelerate the net operating loss deduction. So instead of having to carry losses forward, you would actually get a rebate on those losses now. And so for a bunch of businesses, this policy would just give them immediate cash flow, more cash liquidity so they can keep their doors open, continue to pay their employees. So that would be a great policy to do right now. Um, But basically, no lawmakers are even talking about it anymore, which is pretty disheartening. Wow. I I mean... Look, I you, I guess I should just tell you, I don't have that high of, a, of an opinion of politicians to start with. But when I hear about how petty the politics can get to the point that those deductions might be considered, you know, fair game to take away just because we hate Trump and he might be benefiting from it. That's that's a level of dislike and just just personal pettiness that uh, even pol- that surprises me, even for politicians to stoop that low. Yeah, it's a very low blow, and I just hope that they um, get a higher moral ground right now and basically really look at the policies they are proposing because they have real-life consequences for a lot of people. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a very quick break. My guest is Travis Nix. He is a contributor to Young Voices, and we're going to be talking more about the president's taxes and whether or not the tax code needs an overhaul when we return just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I am so happy to have uh, Travis Nix as my guest today. He is a uh, law student at Georgetown studying tax law. And uh, and frankly, Travis, I think you, you may be the most informed person on taxes and tax policy that I've spoken with in quite some time. And so uh, President Trump's tax history... Has, has generated a lot of interest and, and uh, even a little bit of, of pettiness. Uh, here's the question, though. Is it likely that the tax code is ever going to be overhauled, whether it's, you know, to, to stop the president's alleged loopholes or just simply for the sake of um, simplification? 
is it likely that we're ever going to see the tax code um, re- reconstructed in, in a more productive way? Or does it just does it get worse the more that they tinker with it? Well, I would say that the 2017 tax law did go a long way in simplifying the tax code for individuals, especially. Um, Basically, all the complexity for individuals comes when they itemize their taxes and when they look at special uh, taking deductions. So what the 2017 tax law did was it doubled the standard deduction, and now more people are taking the standard deduction instead of itemizing their taxes. So basically, the time it's taken for most people to do their taxes has gone down since the the 2017 law was passed. Obviously, the law isn't perfect by any means, but it did go a long way in simplifying the tax code for a lot of middle-class taxpayers. Yeah, I I know this has been kind of an interesting year in, in the sense that with all the shutdowns and with the, the way that uh, everything has shifted to, to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we were given an extra three months to file our taxes, which was nice. But uh, tell me about uh, the, the IRS. Um, how are they holding up under this? I, I imagine this is impacting them just like it has impacted other branches of government, you know, right down to, to the local level. Yeah, yeah, I know for a while that they were remote for a very long time, which that's the reason they extended the deadline because there's no way that that actually that helps people because they have more time to do it. And especially they get a hold more of their income while they're struggling with the pandemic. So they don't have to pay the IRS right away. That also just gives the IRS more time to get everything together and get ready for tax season. But right now, um, the IRS is actually pretty underfunded, so they don't do a lot of tax auditing anymore. Basically, all the data shows is really rich people like Donald Trump get audited. And then if you get the earned income tax credit, which is a very complex tax credit for lower income people, you'll get audited. But for the middle class, um, the audit rates are very, very low. So something good did come from 2020. <laughs> yeah, I should. Kn- uh, yeah, I should knock on wood as I say that. But that that almost makes me feel like, uh, all right, we can we can find a silver lining here if we just look hard enough. Um, going back to the idea of okay, so some politicians are making some noise about revisiting the tax code. Do they have the kind of broad support that they could could bring through some kind of tax reform? Whether it's closing those so called loopholes that that uh, that allowed Trump to pay you know seven hundred fifty dollars you know for twenty sixteen, um, or if, if it's for something else, are, are is there is there support for this in Congress? Are they likely to, to make it happen? I personally don't think there is support right now for a bipartisan tax law being passed. I think it's very likely if the Democrats win control of Congress and Joe Biden wins the presidency that they could look to do something like a wealth tax, which would just be disastrous for the overall economy because it would slow investments down so much, make it so hard to invest. And basically, it would just increase the tax avoidance done by rich people like Donald Trump. So it wouldn't solve the problem. If they're going to complain about Donald Trump's taxes, their policies would accelerate the type of tax avoidance practices that we see in Donald Trump's taxes. And then Republicans, um, Donald Trump doesn't have a comprehensive tax plan right now for his second term. So I 
if he wants a comprehensive another comprehensive tax law passed, he needs to propose that plan. Travis, talk to me about the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Yeah, so tax avoidance is legal. It's just if everyone does tax avoidance, you take a deduction to lower your tax liability, that's technically tax uh, avoidance because you're just lowering your tax burden. There's different forms of it. Obviously, there's some stuff in Donald Trump's taxes that border on the line between tax avoidance and tax evasion. Tax evasion is illegal. That's when you basically do an illegal deduction. Um, So an example from Donald Trump's taxes is he deducted the cost of his haircuts. It was a $70,000 deduction. And tax court has ruled twice now in over the last decade, as recently as 2011, that you can't do that. So that's one part of his taxes from the New York Times story that borders the line between tax avoidance and tax evasion. $70,000 for haircuts. Wow. Yes. <laughs> wow. I am in the wrong line of work. <laughs> or at least if I was cutting hair, I wouldn't be cutting the right people's hair. That's... Uh, it's it's encouraging to to know that uh, there are ways to uh, to reduce your taxes that are that are perfectly legal. In other words, they're perfectly in accordance with the IRS code. And I know some people will take this wrong, but I've got to say it. I don't feel any patriotic duty whatsoever to pay a single dime more than I absolutely have to. The less taxes I have to pay, the better I feel. And I, I know that, that maybe that makes me a bad American, but mm-hmm. it's just I I feel like the the system. Is, is so incomprehensible and is so um, difficult to work with, even in the best of circumstances, that uh, I'm just I'm not eager to interact with it. It's more like here, take take my money, take take whatever it is that I owe, but mostly I just want to be left alone. I want to go out there and pursue my happiness and and you know pursue the American dream. Yeah, I think most Americans would agree with you on that point, especially that I don't think most Americans think it is very patriotic to pay more in taxes. That's why basically no one, you can if you want to, you can make voluntary payments to the IRS and pay more than what you owe. Donald Trump arguably did that in 2016 and 2017 because he paid $750 in taxes. And the evidence shows that if he would have maxed out his tax credits, he wouldn't have had to pay anything. And so he actually probably paid more <laughs> than what he should have. Oh, that's awesome. So so really, we should probably be lauding him for, wow, what a guy stepped up and paid money he didn't even have to pay. I mean, I, have, yeah. that's, I would expect Ned Flanders to do that from The Simpsons, but not Donald Trump. <laughs> Yeah, um, that was probably done for political reasons, so we can say that he did pay federal income taxes. But yeah, he most likely paid more than what he should have in those years. Well, I want to cir- what it appears like. I want to circle back to to one of the central themes of your article in the Washington Examiner, and that is the the so called loopholes that that Trump. Um, apparently or allegedly exploited, you know, so that he didn't have to pay his fair share, turn out to be reasonable deductions that any investor or businessman would would take advantage of, not because they're trying to be greedy and not because they're, you know, lighting cigars with $100 bills in a smoke-filled room somewhere, but because that's what makes it tolerable and possible for them to, to put their money up and invest it and, and to put it at risk out there trying to build and create things that actually benefit many people throughout the economy. 
Exactly. Um, I think people don't really appreciate how many businesses would not be able to survive with these tax deductions, and that employs so many people, specifically the depreciation deductions for investments. And basically, that that it's a proven economic fact that this rate uh, causes wages to increase by... Uh, making people more productive and the net operating loss of because so many people are employed with by businesses that would not survive without this deduction in their early years when the business is unprofitable. Travis, this has been an enlightening conversation. I want to have you back on the show again sometime. Travis Nix, uh, tell people where they can find your writing. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at TNix113, or you can go to the Young Voices website and my profile. They have a bunch of my articles. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I want to mention one of my sponsors here. That would be Jeff Staples Real Estate. Jeff is with ERA Brokers Consolidated. And this is good news for anybody within the sound of my voice in the state of Utah because Jeff has connections all over the state. I probably don't have to tell you, if you're, if you're either looking to sell a home or you're looking to buy a home, you understand it is a hot, fast-moving market right now. Some have even used the word, it's crazy out there. And it really is. It's, it's an amazing market. But if you are serious about having the best experience, whether it's buying or selling real estate, you got to talk to my friend Jeff Staples. He will help you sell for more and buy for less, and I want you to get in touch with him. You can call him at 435-619-0189, but since you're probably not writing down his phone number as I tell it to you, I would recommend go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Today is the 1st of October, 2020. And right down there at the bottom of the show notes for today, you will find a link that will connect you up with him. He's got his phone number, his other contact info there. Let him and his guys take care of you. That's Jeff Staples Real Estate. All right. So, how are you feeling? Can I just pose this question? And if you want to respond, you can do so. 801-331-8113. Are you feeling encouraged? Are you feeling discouraged? I know the debate a couple of nights ago left a pretty bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. And, and, and for the most part, it left people feeling like, ah, we're screwed. <laughs> this, this is not getting better. It's going to get worse. Trust me, I feel the same way myself sometimes. And yet, at the risk of, of sounding naive, I have to remind myself what, uh, what Lavoie Finnicum said to me just about every time that I ever met with him in person, he would remind me, we were born for this time. And what he meant by that was there is a larger purpose for those of us who love the cause of liberty, for those of us who love the idea of, of being free to, to make our own decisions, to, to embrace the blessings of liberty. It's a challenging time. And Lavoie knew that better than most, ultimately paying with his life for his love of liberty. But I can't remember words that have have struck a, a stronger note of truth in my soul than his reminder that we were born for this time. And I really believe that if this is if this is a message that resonates with you. Um, it's not just an accident. It's not just a happy coincidence. Oh, hey, you like ice cream. I like ice cream, too. No, it's it's because there is always a need 
And there always has been a need for people who are more committed to truth and more committed to standing for the truth, especially when it's hard. And it doesn't feel like a great compliment, you know, at the time, because frankly, it puts a target on you. People who are willing to speak unpopular truths today know that they're going to pay a price. And it may just be that their family and friends shun them or mock them or otherwise, you know, turn their backs on them. You might be in the actual physical peril, depending on, you know, who hears you or sees you telling the truth. I mean, cancel culture is a real thing. People have been targeted for loss of their jobs and, you know, drummed out of the military or out of law enforcement um, for, for some really remarkably dumb reasons. And it usually comes down to someone didn't agree with what you said. And, and so they, they wanted to target you and destroy you. So if you're one of those people, if you're part of that remnant that values truth more than platitudes, more than acceptance and, and accolades from your fellow man. You're doing the right thing. I don't know who needs to hear it. Maybe it's me that needs to hear it, but you're, you're on the right path. Even if it feels absolutely lonely, and even if it's fraught with danger, you are needed. And I want to I share something with you from uh, Jacob Hornberger. Jacob is the president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. And he is uniformly positive when it comes to talking about things like freedom. And he's not naive. He sees things as they are. He sees them about as clear as anybody that I can think of. But he has a, a great essay. This one landed in my inbox earlier today. How we achieve freedom. Here's what he has to say. He says, an important question naturally arises. How do we achieve freedom given the current circumstances under which we're living in America? Now, Jacob says, I think most every libertarian would acknowledge that when it comes to liberty, America's in seriously bad shape. Moreover, both conservatives and liberals, as reflected by presidential candidates Donald Trump and Joe Biden, are fiercely committed to the welfare warfare state way of life, which is antithetical to the principles of liberty. And he says, no matter how bad things get, Conservatives and liberals become more determined to maintain the iron grip of the welfare warfare state on American life under the guise of protecting freedom and national security. Moreover, he says, the libertarian movement is now filled with people who have made peace with either the welfare state, especially with respect to Social Security and Medicare, or the warfare state, especially with respect to the Pentagon, the CIA and the NSA or both and have committed their efforts to reforming, not repealing them. Moreover, he says, in large part, the libertarian brand has become nothing more than a libertarian conservative hash, and the libertarian movement has become nothing more than a revolving door for conservatives who have become disenchanted with conservative philosophy or the conservative movement. And so he asks, what hope is there for freedom under these bad circumstances? Should we all now just accept that freedom is impossible? and become welfare, warfare, state reformers? Well, he says, one thing is for sure. The road to freedom lies not in reform measures, which necessarily leave infringements on liberty intact. The road to freedom lies in making the case for liberty, which necessarily entails repealing infringements on liberty. Now, he has a great history lesson here. Do you realize in the late 1800s, Americans were living under a system that had no income taxation, 
No Social Security, no Medicare, no welfare state, no drug laws, no Federal Reserve, no fiat, meaning paper money, immigration controls, licensing laws, zoning laws, no Pentagon, no military-industrial complex, no secret mass surveillance, no indefinite detention, no CIA, no NSA, no state-sponsored assassinations, no other massive infringements on liberty that we live under today. Now, he says whenever he points this out to reform-oriented elements within the libertarian movement, that's when they go on the attack against him. Jacob, are you saying that 19th century America was a libertarian panacea, which it clearly wasn't? So he says, let me make it clear once again. I am not saying that the 19th century was a libertarian panacea. I acknowledge that it wasn't. I'm simply saying that 19th century Americans achieved a society without massive infringements on the liberty mentioned above that, that we live under today. So why is that important? Well, for starters, because it shows that it's possible to achieve a society without those massive infringements. That's what libertarian reformers do not want people to focus on. They want people to believe that genuine liberty is impossible to achieve. It's a, it's a utopia. And therefore, that libertarians and others should simply settle for reform measures and call them free market approaches. So that's the first point. Freedom is possible. And he's just given you a completely legitimate historical example. Now, he says, notice something important. Within a relatively short period of time, progressives convinced later Americans to reject that way of life and adopt the welfare warfare state of life, state way of life. So how did they do that? Through the dissemination of their socialist and interventionist ideas and philosophy, a critical mass of Americans in the early, early part of the 20th century accepted their arguments, their philosophy and their ideas. They showed that ultimately it is ideas that rule the world. And he says, if progressives could convince a critical mass of people to abandon the founding principles of an economic of economic liberty and uh, limited government and to adopt socialist and interventionist principles and a national security state. Then he says, why can't we libertarians do the same in the opposite direction? So how do we do that? Jacob Hornberger says we do it by adhering to our principles and showing how our philosophy and ideas are the key to leading our nation out of the statist morass into which conservatives and liberals have plunged our nation. We need to raise people's vision to a higher level, one that strikes at the root of the welfare warfare state way of life. But that can only be done through principle, not through the advocacy of welfare warfare state programmed or reform measures. Now, of course, there are no guarantees of success, just as there were no guarantees of success when the progressives were battling for the adoption of socialism and interventionism at the end of the 1800s and in the early 1900s. But he says adhering to principle, not reform, and disseminating our ideas and philosophy far and wide provide the only chance there is for achieving liberty. But it takes more than just one person writing a wonderful op-ed like he just wrote there to do it. It takes people like you and me who in small ways are willing to step up and speak the truth. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show again, 801-331-8113, if you would like to call in today. Sometimes I feel like uh, I'm not so much a therapist, I'm not Dr. Fraser Crane, but I am here to, to, to listen. I'm here to, to be a sympathetic ear if you've got something that is, you know, absolutely on your mind. And, and I will. I'll just sit back and listen if, if you've got something that you need to get off your chest. I think most of us are feeling pretty taxed this year, and I mean that in the, you know, the abstract sense. It's been a tough year from just about every angle. And as much as you may want to do something, it can be really tough to know exactly what to do. For me, I feel better when I'm speaking the truth, although I have to admit sometimes I feel like I'm crossing a line here because I'm speaking the truth. But at the same time, I don't want to just be, you know, shoveling coal on a fire of fear that is already, you know, roaring in a lot of people's hearts. I guess what I'm saying is this. I hope that as you listen to this program and as you hear the message of, of uh, personal liberty, freedom of conscience, private property rights, the free market, that you come away with a sense that uh, there are people who believe, as you do, it's worth whatever effort it takes to preserve those things. And I hope you feel a sense of hope. I think this is kind of an exciting time to be alive. I wish it weren't as exciting as it was, but nonetheless, I'm going to make the most of it. Maybe you would like to as well. All right, back to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. What do you say, Brian? How are you doing today? I am well. How are you? I'm hanging in there. So you talk about the libertarians and their, you know, ideology. Mm-hmm. One thing I don't understand about the libertarian movement, I'm sure that somehow. Did I lose you? Dang it. I think, Rob, I think I may have lost you there. Call me back because I, I want to hear your take. And, and I know Jacob Hornberger in his uh, in his commentary talked about, you know, well, as libertarians, this is what we think. I don't assume that everybody who listens is a libertarian. I don't even call myself a libertarian. I think the libertarians have a lot of uh, good food for thought to offer. But more than anything, I'm talking to people who are lovers of freedom by whatever You know, whatever tribe that that brings you closest to, that's fine. But I think the label is less important than the principles. All right, let's try this again. Rob, is that you? Yeah, I lost you there. Sorry. That's okay. So tell me, you you were saying uh, something about, uh, you had some questions about, uh, you know, libertarians? Yeah, the the libertarians, uh, I, I guess their ideology is open borders. And I've never really gotten... To understand what they mean by that. I think if I understand it correctly, they mean just pretty much like how you and I would travel from one state to another. It should be that easy for us to cross borders. And that's it. Um, it, that's a simplified version of it. I mean, I'm, I don't know what their absolute exact policy is, but the idea is that, uh, that, that freedom to engage in commerce, whether it's across international borders or across, you know, state lines should be as easy as possible, should have as little government interference as possible. But how would you get all the other governments to comply with that? Um, you let them choose whether they want to comply. The ones who, the ones who want to prosper would find a reason to comply. Come on, even China, 
with its uh, with its lack of freedom, still finds it within its interest to to have much commerce with America and to have people in and out of that country and to have business come in and do business in that country. So there would be a standard um, for all countries to comply with if they wanted to engage in commerce with us. I I don't think that's what that means. I think what that that standard would mean is just open and honest commerce with one another on a voluntary basis, meaning those countries set the terms. This is what it's going to take for us to interact. It doesn't have to be centrally planned. It doesn't have to be one size fits all. Yeah, I just it's always I always see it turning out to be, you know, what's good for the goose is not always good for the gander when you're dealing with other countries. We seem to run into that a lot, even under the policies we're under today. Well, the, the, untrustworthy. You know what I mean? There's, there's just so much. And, and here's the, here's the problem. You're right. There, there's there is some very untrustworthy behavior going on out there, but it's not limited just to those other countries. It's it's our own government that engages in picking winners and losers and doing untrustworthy things. And um, so, you know, true free trade means there is no government interference. People are free to engage. If you want to hire somebody to do work for you, someone from Mexico City, they should be able to hop on a plane, fly up here, do that work for you, collect whatever it is you're paying them, and fly home with as little interference as possible, or or vice versa. That's what you should be able to do. Oh, I'd love to have that. Believe me, we have a lot of interference from all different angles. You know, running a business, it's... Uh quite complicated well the, the, yeah, many you know anybody you know elaborate more on the subject and if there's anyone out there listening that is a, a true libertarian and and wants to you know support it feel free to call in i'd love to hear your point of view of what the open border agenda is because okay i mean without a you know you start going into that direction and then you lose your nation I mean, that's what we're fighting for right now. I used to believe that, and, and, I, and I don't subscribe to that anymore. And I'm not saying, therefore, you should change your mind. I'm just saying I've, I've come to the point where I understand that uh, borders don't serve quite the purpose that I thought they once did in terms of preserving culture. Um, if, if your culture is strong, it's going to stand just fine. Maybe other people will want to copy it. But uh, I, I just I, I see borders that very quickly could become... Um, like a Berlin Wall, depending on which way the guards on top of that wall are, are facing. I, I guess the cult, when you go to the culture subject, the culture would only stand as long as the people that are involved in it are willing to practice it. Yeah, to, to assimilate. Yeah, I just... Uh, the open borders thing, It's uh, it's been a interesting thing and, and and i often think the way you just explained it as well sometimes i wonder should there be borders but then you're going to go to a one world government type no not necessarily i mean well look there the state lines when you cross the state line and suddenly you're in nevada there's things that will fly in nevada that absolutely will not fly in the state of utah and, and it doesn't take a big border wall, you know, to, to make sure that now you're entering Nevada's reality versus leaving Utah's reality. It's just you're held to a different standard when you are in their jurisdiction. 
But as far as crossing the border, it's a simple matter of we're driving. Like, oh, are we in Nevada already? <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I, as long as everyone else would comply on the other side, I think, you know, there's, there's a possibility that could work. You know, that's, you know. I, I totally I totally understand your hesitation, and, and trust me, I had to go through this process myself because it turns out we've been trained for a long time to be really doubtful about whether freedom— can we trust them with freedom? I mean, come on, we can trust us, but can we really trust them? And that's, that's how most of us tend to look at that. I don't know who to trust anymore after the stuff I've seen in the last 20 years. Well, and especially this year. It ain't getting easier, is it? No, it isn't. It's, 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 but, like I said, some reason we landed in this time, like you were talking about Lavoie Finnegan. Yep. yep. We're here for a reason. We've got to finish it out. Agreed. And, and, and to do that, to do, it, to, to do it justice, that means we've got to be more focused on the principles than on the personalities. And that's that's what I hopefully am bringing to the table every time I sit down behind this microphone. Well, yeah, I uh, I, I enjoy your show. I, I definitely do. I, I I like it. So, um, yeah, if there's any libertarians out there that got some good insight on it, I'd love to hear your your side, your point of your your point of view. Okay, that'd be really. Uh, so, somewhere out there, Scott's ears are perking up, and he's going, huh, must get to the phone and <laughs> call in. I don't know if we'll have time to take him on today, but I would I would love to, to give him a chance to, to answer that as well. All right. Take care, Brian. Have okay. a good day. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate the call. Look, I don't have all the answers. There's stuff that I feel fairly confident in committing to, truths that I feel like I've, I've sussed out enough that uh, that I'm okay with with making a commitment to it. And, and, and we'll probably hold to that truth until someone shows me, no, there's, there's actually more information or this will give you a more complete view of what's going on. But the one thing I would ask and the one thing I would absolutely plead with you, don't give up. Don't put your hands in the air and say, this is, this is all worthless. It's all falling apart. I know it seems pretty hopeless from time to time. And I have to battle this too. But this is why we lean on principle rather than simply personalities. What makes principles count is the fact that they stand the test of time. This is The Brian Hyde Show.